Well, we're doing this uh, series of studies on the armor of God out of Ephesians chapter 6, and I've said repeatedly that we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, and where one begins and the other ends off, we do not know, but it's continuous warfare. And as fighting against the forces of darkness, we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We're to know who we are in the Lord. We're to know our position in Christ. We're to know our high calling, the power of the Spirit in our lives as we walk in this warfare. And the devil is the accuser of the brothers and the sisters. He loves to beat us down and beat us up and, and cast us aside and to make us think that we're not loved of God. And, and some of the things that enter our minds are things like this. He immobilizes us with these statements. Uh, can you really be forgiven? And so you're immobilized with fear and guilt. Can you really be forgiven for what you've done? The answer is absolutely. The work of Christ covers all sins, past, present, and future. It is a glorious truth. Or he says something like this, it's too late. You've already done this. Or you're, maybe you're 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. You're not going to change. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That God changes us by his spirit. He forgives us. Or he'll say something like this, if only they knew. If only your community group knew or your friends knew or this group knew, they would cast you aside because your behavior has been scandalous in the past. And really, people do know, and they, they understand that we are forgiven by the work of Christ alone. So behold the beauty of all that Christ is for us. That, John Calvin has a definition of piety, which means your walk with the Lord. He says, I call true piety that reverence for God that is joined with the love of God, which the benefits of, or which the knowledge of his benefits induces. It is the reverence for God joined with the love for God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. And we stand up and say, behold the benefits and the glory of knowing Christ. Behold the wonder of the cross. And that's why Paul starts off this part of Galatians 6 with this statement, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, you know who you are in Christ. And then you put on the whole armor. You put on the belt of truth. You put on the breastplate of righteousness, which represents what Christ has done for you and protects your, your, your feeling and your, 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 your emotions. You, you, put, you have your feet prepared by the gospel of peace. So wherever you go, you're a peacemaker as you preach and you love and you live out the gospel. You take up the shield of faith where you quench the fiery darts of the, of the adversary. And now the helmet of salvation. First Thessalonians says the helmet of the hope of our salvation. The helmet of salvation protects our thinking. And many people in the past have said, and I'm going to take this tack in the next two weeks, that the helmet of salvation represents the assurance of our salvation. We know that we are in Christ and we are His. And so there, there are four places you can be in this, in this issue. I did a little graph that top two represents truth, the bottom two lies, and Satan is the father of lies. There are some people who will be here today, or you have friends who say they're not saved, they don't know Christ, and they don't have a desire right now to follow him. That's a true statement. There are others here who say, I'm a believer. I trust in Christ. He died on the cross for my sins. I know it. I rejoice in him, and I am glad. That's a true statement. Then there are two lies. Bottom left is, I'm not a believer, and I, but he thinks he is. That's called a false assurance of salvation. I'll talk about that some this week and next week. And then the bottom right is, I'm, you're a believer, but you don't know it. 
You have questions and fits and starts, and you're, you're, you're plagued by these things. And I'm going to talk about that today. This is an incredibly important issue to rejoice in the goodness of the Lord. For example, in Romans chapter 8, there's one of the key passages in this area. In Romans 8, Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified, which speaks of being with him forever in heaven. And then he says this, if, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He says, when you trace, trace out this, those whom before knew, he eternally loved. And those who eternally loved, he called unto himself. And those he called to himself, he's declared righteous. And we're going to spend eternity with him. If God is for us, then who can be against us? He, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will not also along with him graciously give us all things. Paul says, behold, the glory of Christ. Behold what he has done for you. Behold the fact, John 10 says, that, that no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. That he, he who holds you is greater than all the demons of the earth. You can trust him. Rejoice and be glad. There's an old Puritan named Thomas Brooks, and he wrote a book called Heaven on Earth, which talks about this issue. And he says this, just two or three sentences, he says, The assurance of salvation turns a Christian's wilderness into a paradise. It will make the soul happy forever. He knows the assurance. Satan knows the assurance that begets in the Christian the most noble and generous spirits. And he knows that assurance is that which will make men strong to do exploits. And so he doesn't want us to know that we're saved. He wants us to have questions and fits and starts. And he says, Satan knows that assurance is manna in the wilderness. It is water out of a rock, referring to the wilderness wanderings. It is a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So Satan doesn't want you to rejoice in the goodness of your salvation. Or he wants to keep us thinking that we truly are in the Lord when we're not. So this is a very delicate issue. The, the glory of the assurance of our salvation. Now we believe that the Reformation of the 16th century was a recovery of the gospel. It was a recovery of the gospel. It was a recovery of the understanding that we're saved by faith in the finished work of Christ alone on the cross. We bring nothing to it. We rejoice in that. And that's why I like to talk about Reformation history. And we have Reformation Sunday. We say it was a recovery of the gospel. So they reformed the church, the church of that day, the Roman Catholic Church, said this. And the Council of Trent, which is an answer to the Reformation, Council of Trent in the 17th century, they said this. Now, just bear with me. It's kind of, listen. They said, if any man says that he can know with assurance that he is saved, let him be anathema. Or let him be condemned to hell. Right? The reformers said, it is our birthright to know that we're saved and to rejoice in it. And their response was, if anybody says that they are saved or no, they, they're assured of their salvation, may they be condemned eternally. That's a strong statement. You don't throw out an anathema unless you're really serious. Anybody says anathema to you, you know, man, boy, 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 boy that's bad. That's bad. Okay? 
So, so I, I say that because I, I affirm and love our Catholic friends. They, they're, they're Trinitarian. They affirm the historic creeds of the church. They are co-belligerents with us. For example, the pro-life movement, many of them are. Um, but in the area of salvation, we are totally at loggerheads. They say that you're saved by faith plus works. It's an amalgam. We say you're saved by faith alone. If you bring anything to the table that you've done, you've just ruined it. You know, one drop of poisonous liquid in a 20-pound sugar bowl is still poison. So it's by faith. It's by Christ alone. It's by faith alone. So I, I, I go through that to, to say this. Recently, we've had this uh, front page of the newspapers, front page of magazines, nonstop in the news, the, the canonization of uh, John the 13th and, and my favorite Pope, Pope John the Second. John Paul II, my favorite Pope Forrest Worth. I, I really like John Paul. And, and I, 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 I admire him. In fact, I tell people, if you're going to read a book about the latter part of the 20th century, read this book by John O'Sullivan. It is a great book. It's called The President, the Pope, and the Prime Minister. It's about how three people stood up against totalitarianism called the Soviet Union and basically defeated them. Of course, President Reagan... John Paul II, who stood up against the Nazis in World War II in Poland and stood up against the communists as, as Pope, and Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of Great Britain. It's a great book. So I, I affirm him as a man, John Paul is a man of integrity and courage and, and valor, a man who was, who was shot, if you remember, somebody tried to assassinate him, and he goes to the man's cell and he extends the hand of friendship and forgiveness. He's a wonderful man. Um, I, my four favorite Supreme Court justices are all Roman Catholic, trained as Jesuits. God bless them. But I, I think it's important for us to understand differences. So they've gone through this canonization process, which basically canonization process means that, that these two popes are now declared saints. They don't have to go through the purgatorial fires, no purgatory. And, and, and that they have achieved more obedience than is necessary to get them into heaven and so it's put into a storehouse a treasury of merit that we can draw upon uh, um, they're, they're saints because supposedly at least three people prayed to them and because they prayed to them they experienced something miraculous and I just go you know at, at best this is biblical silliness it's just unbiblical at worst it's rank heresy there's only one mediator between God and man, and it's not a pope. It's not a preacher. Some of you think it is, but it's not. Okay, just don't go there. <laughs> just kidding. It's Jesus. There's no treasure of merit. It's only the cross. And so it leads to incredible confusion and a non-understanding of the gospel and no assurance of salvation because you don't understand salvation. So a man named Lake Walesa. Lake Walesa goes to the canonization. You remember Lake Walesa? Here's a better picture of him. He was at Gdansk. He was head of a labor union. And he stood up against the communists. And he said, no way. And I admired this man. He's a great man. And, and he goes to Rome. He's, he's a man of courage, a man of integrity, a man that helped bring down the Soviet empire, freed the Polish people. 
And you remember the heady days of 1988 and 1989. They were glorious days, and he was central. And yet he's, he's in Rome, and he's interviewed, and he said, what does it mean that your former Pole, or excuse me, fellow Pole, uh, John Paul II, is being canonized? And he says this. This is, this is a quote. He says, it means to me that, that, that if I go to heaven, excuse me, when I go to heaven, I will have a friend who will greet me if, if I get there. I go, if, if, come on. Behold the glory of the gospel. You see, and a lack of understanding of the gospel immobilizes us. It, it gives us fear and guilt. Now, think about the ifs, but listen to this. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. There's no if there. It's done. In him we have forgiveness of our sins. There's forgiveness. And it's according to the riches of his grace, not what I do. It's Christ. And so you go to chapter 2 and he says with incredible clarity, he says, when you were dead in your trans or trespasses and in the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You used to walk that way. He says, but God, who is being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. I said, you know, I, I, when I get the gospel right, it produces joy and hope and laughter and assurance. I think this treasury of merit, and I, I think of Luke 17, verse 10, where Jesus says, so, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. There's no works of super irrigation. We go beyond what's commanded. Jesus says, when you've done your very best, 24-7, if that were possible, at the end of the day, he said, hey, we're only unworthy servants. I think of the Apostle Paul, his next to last book that we have that he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, he says that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It's amazing. But, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, you know, God worked in me to show that God can save even the worst of sinners. I'm just an example. And then he breaks out in, in spontaneous praise. He's just so overcome with joy. He says, he says now, now, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you, do you see that? So when you're accosted by the devil and the devil says, can you really be forgiven? They kick you out of their small group if they knew or it's too late. What do you do? You quote verses 
or you get a couple of good hymns. I was thinking about this. There's a hymn written by a man named uh, Edward Moat. Edward Moat was a British pastor. He was a cabinet maker. He came to faith in Christ, and he became a pastor. He was a pastor of a church for 26 years, and after 26 years, the church, to say thank you, wanted to give him the deed to the building. I don't understand that. I guess that's retirement. I don't understand that. But he said, no, I don't want the deed to the building. I want the pulpit. And when I quit preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, you turn me out. He wrote a hymn. It's a great hymn. It goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is seeking sand. See, Pastor Mo said, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. He says, I'm going to have some days when the birds are singing and, and, and the sun is shining and it's 78 degrees and it's 50% humidity and there are not any no and it is delightful. This is going to be a sweet day and I can, I can hear, basically hear the voice of God saying, you are mine, you are mine. And he says, I, I dare not trust the sweetest frame because you know, good days will come and good days will go and bad days will replace them. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I only lean on Jesus' name. In the second stanza, he, he turns the tables. He says, when darkness seems to hide his face, another, another way of, another says this, when darkness hides his lovely face, hear that? Lovely face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock. See, when he says anchor holds within the veil, talking about the book of Hebrews talks, says that there's an anchor for our faith that goes within the veil. The veil was the, the, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And, and you only went to the Holy of Holies once a year. And the high priest did. But when Christ died on the cross, the, that curtain was rent from top to bottom, saying there's open fellowship with the living God because of the cross of Jesus. And he says, my anchor holds within that veil. He says, when darkness hides his lovely face, and darkness will hide his lovely face, hard times will come. And there'll be times when you feel as when you pray that your, your, your prayers fall to the ground. You'll try to read the Bible and you're going, I can't even read it. It just, I, I don't understand what I'm reading because I'm consumed with grief. I talked to a dear person who lost a spouse and they said, every time I pick up the Bible, I would read it and I would say, I don't even know what I read. Darkness will hide his lovely face. But he says this, when darkness hides his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. God, I can't see you right now. I just can't see you. I want to see you. But even in my despair, my depression, my hurt, my anguish, you're unchanging. And you love me. And my anchor holds within the veil. I'm not trusting my emotions. I'm not trusting anything but the work of Jesus on the cross. And that gives me hope. So he got it. It's a great hymn. It's great theology. And so the Westminster Divines, in writing about this issue, said, said with, with great clarity regarding the uh, assurance of salvation, 
in the Westminster Confession of Faith. They said, this certainty is not a bare conjecture and probable persuasion grounded upon fallible hope. No, it is, it is an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation as the inward evidence of those graces are made testimony by the spirit of adoption. So they use words like this, certainty, infallible assurance, divine truth based upon the promises of salvation, the witness of the Holy Spirit. And so we trust, we look, we rejoice. And so a couple things. Satan wants to immobilize us by are not knowing the assurance of salvation. More about that next week. Another thing Satan does is he delights. He delights to see people have a false assurance of salvation and they just float in ineffectiveness or disobedience. He, he delights when people think they're saved when they're not. When I talk to people, I say, do you, do you have a saving knowledge of Christ? Yeah, 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 I, I guess so. Oh, yeah, I was raised in a Christian home, or my spouse is a Christian, or I went to a Christian camp 30 years ago and did this, and yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I guess I am. Oh. Let me read a couple of passages. Second Peter says this. He says, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. Because if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive an eternal welcome into the glorious kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you do these things, so he says, don't, don't just float. So make your calling, make your election, your eternally loved of God. Make that sure in your life by doing these things. And what are these things? Verses 5 to 7. This scripture is so beautiful the way it hangs together. Verse 5 says, add to your faith goodness. And, and to goodness add knowledge. And to knowledge add steadfastness. And to steadfastness add perseverance. Or self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance add godliness. And to godliness add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, add love. You do these things. You do these things. You don't just, yeah, I guess I am. No, you say, no, no, no. I want to be zealous to show that I truly know Jesus by the way I live. Living in obedience doesn't make you a Christian. It's the manifestation of what Jesus has done in your heart. And I see people all the time, all the time, all the time, who have no concern for the things of God. And yet they say, well, you know, somewhere back there I was baptized, or I, I did this, or I did that. I, no one can know for sure if they're a believer or not, except the Holy Spirit. So I can't judge their hearts. But I look at this passage and I go, man, you know, come on. Come on, make your call and your election sure by doing these things. And Peter goes on, he says this. He says, he says, if, they, if you have these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be unproductive. I don't want to be ineffective. I have one life, and it's quickly moving by. And he says this, For whoever lacks these things is nearsighted and blind, and he has forgotten that he has been cleansed. 
from this passage. So I, I, Peter holds out the possibility that people can float and they may be nearsighted and blind. At the very best, they're nearsighted and blind. And he says, but you guys, you make your call and your election sure. See, Satan wants you to be ineffective, and one way to do that is, is for us to have a false assurance of salvation. It's a great concern in my heart. I talk to people frequently who, who are non-believers. I, I really have a deep regard for, for Mahatma Gandhi, the great soul, who spent most of his adult life in South Africa, came back to India, and in South Africa he jettisoned the caste system to a degree, and so he spoke with diligence and grace to his people in India. But Gandhi, who was very clear that he never trusted Christ, said repeatedly, the most beautiful thing I have ever read, he said, is the Sermon on the Mount, which is a great statement because he'd read voluminously. But when people say that, I, and, and they're not believers, I think, have you really read it? Now, I read it, and I'm going, whoa, you know, whoa. I mean, maybe they've read like Thomas Jefferson read the Bible. You know, I like that verse. I'm going to cut that out and put it in my book. If I don't like that, I'm going to cut it. I'm going to blacken that out. Cut it out. Bible. Yeah, I like that. No, I don't like that. No. But I read this part of, to me, this is the scariest passage in the Bible. And it's in the Sermon on the Mount. This, the words of Jesus. Listen. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? No. Or, or figs from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good, or a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So he says unmistakably, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Verse 16, verse 20, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Verse 17, every good tree bears good fruit. It's pretty clear. The manifestation of our faith is it's fruit, it's manifestation. It's not the ground, it's the manifestation. So, and then he gives an application statement to this broad, sweeping statement. And this is where it gets real scary to me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, which supposedly is a term of endearment. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy or preach in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or iniquity. And what Christ is saying here is that is that the proof of our salvation is obedience. It doesn't save us, but it's the proof of our salvation. It's just so clear. I read that and I tremble. I tremble. And so I've got this, I'll do the more next week, but I've got this little statement here from a wonderful systematic from a guy named Wayne Grudem, page 804 to 808. 
where he says the three questions to ask yourself to see if you're truly a believer. He says, number one, do, do you have a present tense trust in Christ alone for your salvation? Do you see Christ working in your heart today? Not, not just what happened to you 30 years ago. Thanks be to God for that. But you're, are you trusting in Christ today? Do you run to the cross today? We, we, we grow up with these terms. And I don't, sometimes I, we, have to be, we have to be very clear in our terms, brothers and sisters. We live in a post-Christian culture. And some of the terms we formerly used, you go, just step back. You have to step back and say, well, let me define that. We always, some people that are older like me say, well, We've asked Jesus into our heart. I don't even know what that means. Please say, I have trusted Christ and his work on the cross for my sin. Because when you do that, you trust him in your heart and in your wallet and in your passions and in your purposes and in your friendships. See, I'm trusting in Christ. Second question, is there evidence of the regenerating work of salvation by the Holy Spirit in my heart. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Peter says, add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and perseverance and godness and brotherly kindness and love. Do, do you see these things growing in your heart? You see, sanctification is growth in Christ. The older you get, the more sweet you should be. I can't wait to get 10 years older if God gives me life. You know? Because the Holy Spirit's going to be working in me. And then Gruden makes this statement. He says, there is another kind of fruit, the result of one's life ministry as they influence others and on the church. There, there are some people who profess to be Christians but whose influence on others is to discourage them, to drag them down, to injure their faith, and to provoke controversy and divisiveness. The result of their own life ministry is not to build up others, and to build up the church, but to tear it down. On the other hand, there are those who seem to edify others in every conversation, every prayer, and every work of ministry they put their hands to. Uh, thanks be to God, many, many people, many people I know just bless me every time I meet them. It's just a joy. I want to be that way. And he says, thirdly, do you see long-term patterns of growth in your life? The, the inclination of your heart is to be obedient to Christ. None of us are perfect. All of us struggle. All of us stumble. All of us sin and fall. But the inclination of my heart is the graph is trending up. And he says, you know, if you can say, answer those things correctly, then you should be rejoicing your salvation. Um, I, uh, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And Every time I read one of these books, I say, that's my favorite book. So at least I'm consistent, you know. I really do believe that maybe my favorite book is The, the Horse and His Boy. It's just so good. It's got, it's got so much in it. It's, the background, very quickly, is there's a, there's a boy. We introduced a boy from the front, front page named Shasta. And Shasta has been living all of his life with uh, a, a horrid vile, mean man that he thinks is his father. But Shasta was kidnapped. And this vile, mean man who beats him and rarely feeds him and treats him as if he is a refuse, uh, Shasta's just 
covered with sores, and he lives outside, and he works 14 hours a day, and he befriends this horse, and unknown to him until a little bit later in the book, the horse is a Narnian horse, you know, from the kingdom of Narnia. He is a talking horse, okay? And he tells Shasta, he says, there's a glorious kingdom beyond here. That's ruled by a benevolent king called King Loon, and we should escape there. And Shasta says, I can't escape. He says, no, we can't escape. So they, they, they flee, and they meet up with a young woman who's on another talking horse, and this talking horse that she has to have is called Wynn, and Wynn is a really nice horse, but the horse that the little girl's on is Bree. Bree's an arrogant, proud, obnoxious horse, another talking horse. So they, they flee, and they, they get to the magic kingdom, and uh, this, this, this is so good. And they, they hear all these rumors about a great lion who rules the kingdoms. The rules Narnia. And uh, the arrogant horse named Bree says, he says, if he was a real lion, he'd have to be a beast just like the rest of us. Why? And then Bree began to laugh obnoxiously. If he was a lion, he'd have four paws and a tail and whiskers. How ridiculous can you be? And he said, whoa, help. For just as he said the word whiskers, one of Aslan's had actually tickled his ear. Aslan, the great king of Narnia. And Bree shot away like an arrow to the other side of the enclosure. And there he turned. And the wall was too high for him to jump over, and he couldn't fly over it. And so he and Wynne, the good horse, started back. And there was a second of intense silence. And then when, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the great lion, and she said, listen, this is so good. She said, please, you're so beautiful, you may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. Just so, I'd rather be eaten by you, Aslan, than fed by anyone else because you're beautiful. Dearest daughter, said Aslan, planting the lion's kiss on her twitching velvet nose. I knew you would not be long in coming to me. Joy shall be yours. And then he turns to the arrogant horse, Bree. He says, now, Bree, he said, you poor, proud, frightened horse, draw near no, nearer still. Then he says this, do not dare not to dare. <laughs> That's good. Do not dare not to dare. Touch me, smell me. Here are my paws. Here's my tail. These are my whiskers. I am a true beast. And, and Bree said in a shaking voice, oh, 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 Aslan, I'm, I'm afraid I must be called a fool. And Aslan said, happy the horse who knows that while he's still young, or the human either. Happy to know that you're a fool. And just, they're attracted by the beauty of Christ. And then the, the main course of the story is, is that Shasta, really, he doesn't know it, but he has a twin, identical twin brother, and that Shasta is the king's son. He doesn't know it. This great king, my favorite character in all of these books, I think, is a guy named King Loon who shows us how to be men. He's bold, he's gracious, he's caring, he's embracive, he's filled with joy. I love King Loon. 
The king looks at his dad. So Shasta thinks he's a beggar child and a beggar boy, and he's dressed in rags, and he meets this guy that looks just like him. And so they fight in a battle, and they bring the boys in before the king, and the king has been longing to see this child that's been kidnapped. He thought he was dead. And the king looks at him, and he says, Can there be any doubt? And this is what it says. What well, next surprised Shasta, the beggar boy, as much as anything that had ever happened to him in his life. He found himself suddenly embraced in a bear-like hug by King Loon and kissed on both cheeks. Then the king set him down again and said, Stand here together, boys, and let all the court see you. Hold up your heads. Now, gentlemen, look on them both. Has any man any doubts that these are twins, my boys? And still Shasta could not understand what was going on because all stared at he and his brother and then began cheering with all of their might. And I thought, how many, how many people go about in beggar's clothes not realizing they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ? How many people cower in the presence of the living God not knowing that their anchor holds within the veil? Behold the goodness of the glory of the cross. Rejoice in your salvation if you've trusted Christ. There's an old Puritan named Thomas Watson or Brooks, I've forgotten. And he said that, he said, our walk with the Lord is like you're walking as your father tenderly holds your hand through life. He's just holding your hand and he's looking at you and he loves you and you look up into his eyes. He says, but occasionally, occasionally, this benevolent, gracious Dad sweeps you into his arms and holds you and kisses you on your cheeks and nuzzles your nest or nuzzles your neck and says, I love you. I love you. And then he holds your hand. He never lets go of your hand, but there are times when he just holds us and says, You're mine. You're mine. I love you forever. That's what we need to hear. If you've trusted Christ, do not let the devil rob you of that delight. Do not listen to his accusations. Rejoice in your salvation. Conversely, don't, don't just float and say, yeah, I, I guess I'm a Christian. No, you, you make your calling and your election sure. You press, you cry out, God, give me a heart to be inclined to obedience. More about that next week, God willing. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the privilege of, of opening Scripture and just hearing from you. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that we would not walk, not walk in rags when there is a full closet of glorious garments called the righteousness of Christ awaiting us. I, I pray that we would not walk in fear and a servile spirit when, when the good king, whose name is Jesus, shouts, behold, my child. Don't, don't, don't let that happen. I also pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of, of many people in our circles of relationship who, who have some type of um, seemingly have made some type of statement about faith in Christ, but there's no desire to honor you. I, I pray you would really show them the importance of, of pressing hard after you. God, and, and let us walk in the joy and certainty of Christ and let us be men and women who go forward in faith because of that. So God bless us. God protect us. God, God bless those who are being going across the, the oceans this week. Um, 
give grace. God bless us as we go into our, our neighborhoods and into our marketplace. Give grace. And we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.